0: Hello, everyone. My name is Cami Mondo, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Forum. You're listening to Behind the Ballot, a political podcast introducing you to the candidates running for Utah's statewide and congressional offices. In each episode, we'll be talking with different candidates to find out more about their campaign platforms, specifically addressing the issues college students care about the most. Today you'll be hearing an exclusive interview with Cale Weston, the Democratic candidate for Utah's 2nd Congressional District. Weston was nominated during the party's state convention, sending him straight to the November ballot without a primary challenger. He'll face incumbent Representative Chris Stort, who has held the seat since 2013. Weston is no stranger to Westminster College, as he spent time here as a writer-in-residence and professor for the Honors College. Weston also has an extensive background in government, spending 11 years in the U.S. State Department, where he spent seven of those years as an advisor for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Today, you'll hear Weston talking the issues that he's focusing on in his campaign. Although he's facing an incumbent Republican, Weston believes he has a strong chance of turning the 2nd Congressional District blue in the upcoming election. In fact, a poll from UtahPolicy.com categorized Representative Storr as potentially vulnerable in the election if he was running against a democrat with strong support that's because of the decreasing amount of support for president trump in the second district and stort's consistent voting record supporting the president at the time of this interview representative chris stort's campaign did not respond to multiple requests for an interview with the forum a disclaimer before we get started some portions of the interview had to be edited out for time constraints but you can read the full unedited interview with kale weston on our website WC4Media.com. I'm here with Kale Weston, the Democratic candidate for Utah's 2nd Congressional District. Uh most of our listeners actually know Kale personally because he spent time as a writer in residence here at Westminster. So thank you so much for joining me today, Kale.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh Like you said, Westminster Connection to Westminster Connection.
0: I spoke with Weston on July 29th, asking about his views on five subjects. Healthcare, immigration, climate change, police reform, and student debt. But first, I wanted to know what prompted Weston to run for Congress. First, I'm really interested in hearing from you, Kale, um, you know, like the big question of what made you decide to run for Congress?
1: That's a good one because, you know, I think it's a serious time for our state, for the district, and I think for our country. And I didn't jump up and down right away saying this was something I envisioned myself doing. But I also believe I have some biography and background that lends itself to some of the challenges I think that the district has right now. And I think number one on that would probably be a lot of division. My 11 years in the State Department meant a lot of bridge building. And I think one of the big points I like to emphasize is while we can't necessarily shouldn't agree on every issue, I think there are issues that that we can agree on. I also think that there's been a real disconnect in this district specifically where I feel like the incumbent, Chris Stewart, has treated his role to be more of a drive-by, no-show candidate. And I think that in order to earn the, the title of representative, you really do need to do exactly that, earn it. And then there were two themes and two issues that we started off by focusing on. One of the big themes, of course, is country over party. I believe that neither party has all the answers. And I think now is a time where we need to look at what's in our nation's interest, not just what's in party's interest. And I think that's a big difference between me and him. Two issues. One, of course, is health care. And then based on my own biography and what I taught students at Westminster about is war and peace. I don't ever want young people from Utah or from any part of our country to go to a war that should never started. CD2 being such a big district, uh, half the state geographically, I think is an opportunity to do exactly what I said before to bridge build. So I love that it's a big gerrymandered district, ironically.
0: (laughs) And I know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you've held elected office before, but you do have an extensive background working in like the government. So why do you think that you're a better candidate for the second congressional district?
1: I haven't run for office since high school, but I've never lost an election in Utah and I don't intend to lose now, (laughs) but my background is very serious. I, spent 11 years representing our country overseas and and at the United Nations. That biography actually is what we need more of. I think we need people who are diplomatic by nature, who are looking to find common ground. I do think that he unfortunately treats his job to be Trump's representative to the district and not to be the representative of the people in the second congressional district to Washington.
0: And then you did mention you're facing Representative Chris Storr, who is an incumbent. And the 2nd Congressional District has always been like a mixed bag, jumping back and forth from Republican to Democrat. Ben McAdams is the only Democrat we have in Congress right now. Do you think you could be another Democrat in Congress in such a traditionally red state?
1: I think if you look at the polling, that's one indicator. Big polls from KUTV and Utah Policy put Chris Stewart at 38% and 44%. So that's not just me spinning. Two big polls that show he's under 50%, but he's actually under 45%. That's not a place any incumbent wants to be. But I think we can win on issues. I think that the issues this year favor Democrats, and I think... And I'll be honest, I think Chris Stewart's exactly the Republican I want to be running against because he has not provided himself any space. And I think Stewart's getting the reputation of putting Donald Trump in front of the interests of the district.
0: Then we got into it. First, I asked Weston about healthcare, which has become a more prominent issue among politicians' platforms in both state and presidential races. College students are among those who have worries about healthcare, ranking it as one of their top priorities. They're looking for in a candidate. Um, a lot of college students view the healthcare in this country is too expensive. A lot of college students that I talked to supported Bernie Sanders and his idea for Medicare for all. So I was just curious what your thoughts are on the state of healthcare in the U.S
1: great question and the state of healthcare is is abysmal it's really almost criminal what happens when people go bankrupt over medical costs and let me give you some personal background when i was in the state department i had the, the best healthcare i had what basically members of congress have i never worried about the bill it was cheap and I was fully, fully covered when I transitioned from my State Department career to teach and to become a writer. I went on the individual market, so I've been on the Affordable Care Act for a decade. I think I'm much more relatable candidate this year because, based on that, that I've I've lived the unpredictability of our current healthcare system. On the for all, I think that public option. I think what uh, COVID has shown. And I think until we get to a situation where healthcare is truly for all, uh, we're failing the people. Next,
0: we move to racial justice and police reform. With mass protests happening every day across the country for the last two and a half months, this has become an increasingly important issue among voters on both sides of the aisle, especially for young voters on the organizing fronts of the protests
1: we need to reform the police in a serious way. I'm not for, quote, defunding the police because I think it's it's thrown out there as a political headline. The police are doing things that a lot of the police don't want to be doing right now. I think it's about reprioritizing what law enforcement has been doing that they shouldn't be doing. And I'll also be blunt, I don't think we need a militarized police force. So I'm for reforming the police in a serious way. I've heard police unions talk about the concerns they have, but none of them are really arguing that reforms aren't necessary. you know. If we're going to believe in justice as a principle in our country, are we actually going to deliver on that? My role running for a federal job would be to look at the ways those protections could be nationalized. So while law enforcement is often funded locally and a lot of those issues are left to mayors or governors, I think as a member of Congress, there's a way to say, hey, if you're going to get federal resources, there's going to be some uniformity, no chokeholds, for example, certain tactics that are just not good for anyone and can get people killed. So those would be the places I would start.
0: And I know... Like you said, the whole, quote, defunding the police has been used for some people to say, oh, then you want no police at all, and other people mm-hmm. having different definitions. What would that reform look like to you? Specific? Do you have any specific ways to reform?
1: I think training. I think, you know, there's some legitimate criticisms about is it easier to become a member of a police force than it is to be qualified as an electrician? I think those are some examples of what is the standardization of qualifications and training that should be assumed before someone wears a badge. I think that law enforcement is important. I'm never going to advocate that we get rid of any police force but I think we need to make sure those standards are high. And I think when you look at probably some of the union protections that make it hard for problematic members of the police to be fired or that they're easily rehired, those are areas I think that need to be reformed. But it's also, again, some issues are tied to help are tied to resources that a police officer isn't qualified to give. And I'm running on that too. The social safety net can't be two threads thick. It can't be tied two pieces of string together and think that that. That's going to hold. It won't hold. And it hasn't held for sure in the last year.
0: Next, we got into immigration and specifically focused on DACA. Before the school year started and around the time this interview was recorded, ICE had issued a statement that would ban international students from staying in the country if their schools were conducted all online. They later backtracked on this idea, only barring first-year students from staying in the country.
1: I, I feel very strongly about this. When I was a student at the University of Utah, I worked at the International Center. And every fall, I would welcome the international students in. I mean, I've lived, you know, study abroad for me and my career in the State Department. So one of the tragedies right now is, is that it's like our administration wants to pull the drawbridge up and say, stay away, stay out. We're a strong country because we've always been a welcoming country. And I think it's, it's tragic that we've gotten to a point where we're not viewed as welcoming. We're viewed as trying to keep people away. So those visas I, I support, and I've lived those issues when I was a student employee at the University of Utah at the International Center there. I think on DACA, I'm for a pathway to citizenship, and I'm definitely not in favor of rounding anyone up and saying, because you were young when you got here. You're somehow less than anyone else. So there's a dreamers act and I support a pathway to citizenship. And that's one of the messages I would put to all of you listening. Now is not the time to be a bystander or to be quiet. We need to let people know where we stand. You guys are students at a time that's incredibly important. I'm reassured when I see you know, some of what my former students are doing and how you're all being involved in the fact that you're asking questions like these and having this interview, it shows you're engaged. And that's hugely important. The question I have is, are young people going to vote? <laughs> because that's sometimes the, the gap. If you're active and involved, but you don't vote, that causes its own kind of problem.
0: Being someone who's taught, you know, you've been interacting with international students for a very long time. Yeah. Do you think that gives you a unique perspective that should be in Congress when these decisions are being made?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's being a teacher, a writer and a diplomat. I wouldn't have been prepared, I think, to say I could talk about war and peace in Congress if I hadn't lived seven years consecutively in war zones, right? So I don't think that every biography needs to be the same at all. I think uh, variety and diversity is incredibly important. And while I'm not a favor of having another middle-aged white guy in Congress because there's too many people like me in that category, beyond those adjectives, I've got some experience and background, I think, that are pretty serious. Well, Serious is in right now, because I think if you don't have a serious approach to what government does for us when it works or what it can cost us when it doesn't work, probably ought to be in some other line of work. To say at this point in my life, I'm ready to represent 700 plus thousand people 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been ready.
0: Then we got into climate change. Students are strong advocates for climate solutions as they often consider themselves the generation to deal with the most drastic effects. I asked Weston what his thoughts were surrounding his potential role in Congress, specifically on climate change issues.
1: Well, I would say that there's three levels. Um, First is we need to get back into the international discussions. Right now, the Trump administration has pulled our representation on some of the big international discussions going on, and that's The first place I would start is making sure we're leading in an international way. If we're not at the table, we're not part of the solution. The second is where I think Congress does have a role. Pollution doesn't stay in borders. The inland port's in the district, and I'm following that issue pretty closely. I think I have views on it, and some people say, well, that's a local issue. Well, pollution isn't a local issue. Um, I'm not against attacks. I mean, I'm not a fearful politician that says, oh my gosh, people won't vote for you if you ever mention we need to pay more to help our environment. And I know some people think I'm maybe too forward on that, but I think, you know, the gas tax is something to look at. I'll end with one more and we probably don't have time to get into it, but it's water. How do you look at water in the state of Utah, which is the second driest in the country after Nevada? And how do I have discussions with farmers about what might be a mega drought, you know, that's beginning? And that, I think, enables us to bridge between the environmental community and maybe the agricultural community. Final point, I don't ever treat all farmers or ranchers the same, just like I don't treat all environmentals the same. The more you get into a room and listen to each other, the more you see that actually there's a lot of kind of diversity within groups as well. And that's where you find the the bridges.
0: Then we got into student debt, which Cale was expecting to talk about. During his last semester teaching at Westminster, the college announced its expected tuition increase for the 2020 school year, which was an 8.5% increase. This led to protests from students and the eventual creation of a student union on campus. Cale was here and spoke to students about their thoughts, and I wanted to know if that would influence his campaign. And then moving on to just the fifth and final issue that I have. Student loans? That's exactly what it is, yeah. (laughs) Like, unfortunately, a reality among like me and my friends, especially Mm -hmm. going to school Mm -hmm. today. So I was just curious what your goals and priorities would be if you were elected.
1: Yep. Well, again, I'll speak to my biography. I I lived it. So when I graduated Mm -hmm. from the University of Utah 24 years ago, give or take, 22 years ago, something like that, I had almost $25,000 worth of debt, which in today's dollars would probably be 40 or $45,000. It was a significant amount of money. So I'm not speaking about this issue theoretically. I actually lived it. It took me until I got to Iraq to pay off those loans. And I always say, I don't recommend going to a war zone to pay off your student loans, but that's basically what it took me. Total forgiveness, I'm still understanding that, I think that in principle, it's the right goal. Pragmatics, I'm not sure right now how quickly we could get there. But I do know this and my students at Westminster really helped uh, educate me about this. I think there's a way to look at indexing income and student loan forgiveness or payback. I think some forgiveness, given the economic situation, makes sense. If I can get smart enough where I'd say, hey, total forgiveness is the way to go. And I know that's Bernie's position. And I like Elizabeth Warren a lot as well, because I think she's very detailed on her policies, then I think it gives your generation a chance because you're also facing an, an economic challenge and a job situation that I'm sure is very scary. And I think as a member of Congress, I would be very focused on that because I've lived it. So I think it's I think the goal is, is to find the reasonable approach. And I think some forgiveness would be probably part of that. I don't yet have a firm position on total forgiveness because I, I just haven't had time to really look at the numbers. But I think it's, a, it's an important issue that we we address addressed because there needs to be a fairness principle I think in taking out loans and then the repayment or forgiveness.
0: I feel like you also have a unique position on that as well because like you said you like talk to students about this specific issue and your views are almost completely informed by them. Do you think that's a voice missing from Congress that you could provide.
1: Uh, Oh, oh, I know it is because I was teaching when Westminster made the decision about the tuition increase. So I'll I'll tell you the exact story. Uh, We were at the end of the uh, semester timeframe and we were having a farewell. Good luck breakfast at uh, Blue Plate. And I did. I said, tell me what you all think. And one of the students I remember said, you know what, this is unfortunately doing is it's creating a divide among those students whose parents have the means to cover the bill and those students who don't, because I had my own views. But I was able to hear directly from my honor students, you guys are expected to pay a lot more. And I'm not sure that that model was ever sustainable. And then our government, I think, has a role to come and say an educated population is good for all of us, and we don't want students to be so overburdened with debt that you can never get out from under that.
0: Finally, I asked Hale why college students should vote in this election, as many are calling this the most important election of their lifetimes. I also gave him the chance to give one last pitch for his campaign. Just as like a final closing, why college students should use this election to vote, because as you said earlier, college students are kind of notorious for not voting, why they should include their voice in this election, especially.
1: Well, I'm going to start with that one first, because apathy is something that is easy to fall into. And it's not just young people. It's everyone. We get busy. Uh, we get focused on other things, but I think it's at times when the stakes are the highest that you've got to fight the apathy the most. And I'm more hopeful about this. I do think that young people are going to vote. Um, but if if you don't vote, it's on you. If you don't actually take your voices from online and maybe in newspapers or in your groups to ballot box on November 3rd, so I would say that in 2020 it is, I would argue, one of the most important elections that we're going to have for a long time because we kind of know where we are. It's a referendum on Trump and the Trump administration and I think a referendum on people who blindly support him like Chris Stewart. And it, it's taking a stand. at saying my vote does matter. It does matter even in a gerrymandered district. We have a lot of benefits still in our country and we shouldn't take those for granted either. I've lived in conflict zones and war zones where people are struggling to stay alive week to week. We're not there, you know, and I hope we never get there. But we need to take very seriously what voting means in terms of that final step, that final expression of what it means to take a hold of your future. But I'll highlight our team because no candidate can win on his or her own plan or whatever. It's, it takes a true team. and And I've been lucky enough, including a lot of Westminster students who are helping me right now. And they are able to use their own backgrounds, their own studies to say, hey, I want to speak out on this issue or that issue and help me as a candidate get smarter. So the biggest advantage we have is we've got a great team. And we're running against the perfect villain. (laughs) I I tell people, you know, it's not myself as a candidate, it's the best thing going. It's we're running against someone who's truly beatable, because I think he's taken for granted what it means to be a, a true representative. Again, it's not a title that is bestowed. And it's not a title that's inherited. It's not a title that you can just take from election to election. It's a title you need to earn. So I'll end with a final thing I I take from the war zones. I always keep the promises I make, which is why I don't make very many. So the promises that I make, I keep, and they can be very few. I mean, sometimes it's once a month if you're lucky, and sometimes it may be once a week, but it's not very often because I believe broken promises are part of the rap sheet of politicians. You know, they they promise a lot, and they never deliver. So what I would promise students is I've lived among you, I've taught you, and I've learned a lot from you. And I think your issues are. My issues. I've also been someone who had significant student loan debt. I think on the other issues, I'm open, I'm transparent, I'm accessible. Those are all the things I think that representatives need to be. And if I don't do the job and I get elected, then you should fire me in two years. It's as simple as that. I don't believe in, in staying in a job just because you've got to earn it. And uh, if I don't deliver in two years, I should be fired.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me.
1: Not at all. Let's keep it up. So uh, when you want to do it again, maybe when we're closer to to election i'd have, be happy to do it and keep the conversation going i really love when uh, student journalists reach out because writing and and recording and podcasts are all part of what makes a democracy work if we don't get conversations going then elections come around and we don't know why we're voting or who we're voting for so so thank you for uh for reaching out your generation i believe is part of the solution i'm not just saying that i believe that you guys have figured out some important things. You're coming into the job market at a tough time, but I think you've figured out priorities. And I've seen it change in Utah.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all right.
1: it. All right. Thank you.
0: Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Behind the Ballot, a podcast introducing you to candidates so they are more than just a name in an envelope. Read the full profile on Cale Weston on our website, wc4media.com, and make sure to check out our social media for the latest updates, at WC4 Media on all platforms. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Democratic candidate for the Attorney General, Greg Scortis. See you next time.